G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, they'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we'd really appreciate a moment of your time um, to leave us a review. So joining Brian and myself, not in the studio, again, remotely in a, an appropriate social distance, is Dr. Rebecca Geddes, who sees one of our clinical scientist fellows in uh, small animal medicine here at the Royal Veterinary College. So thank you, um, Bex, for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Don. And, uh, and, and, and we're, we're glad that the building work is sort of finished at your, at your home because obviously everyone's uh, sort of either at work remotely or, or home. So um, I'm glad that stopped for the day. So hopefully we won't have any um, acoustic, uh, acoustic issues and I hope that the, the building work goes, uh, goes well. But we thought thank we'd you. talk about... <laughs> <laughs> we thought we'd talk about um, subuteric stents because um, I, I suppose well, maybe you could uh, maybe you could tell um, us how you how you started to get in, involved in um, in the in the ureteric uh, stents that we we perform here at the RBC. Um, okay, well, yeah, absolutely. Firstly, I'd say we don't place too many stents now, or certainly in cats, which I think is what we were going to sort of focus on today. We now tend to place the subcutaneous ureteral bypass devices or subs um but I've really come into this from the medical side of things obviously as you said I'm small animal internal medicine rather than surgery so I don't place the subs myself but I'm particularly interested in why we're seeing so many cats that actually have ureteric obstructions because that seems to be something that's been on the rise um, and the vast majority of the time, it's because they've got um, a stone in their ureter. So why are these cats forming kidney stones that are then causing them problems blocking their ureters? Um, when we need to intervene, because as medics, we sort of run out of options to manage them medically and we have to get the surgeons involved. And then the best way for us to try and manage these cats afterwards as well. Cool. And, um, and so, so Bex, with... Um... Yeah, I, I, I don't know why I said stent. Obviously, the subcutaneous urethral bypass. I, I was um, so you, I suppose like with with um, these cases that sort of come in to to see us and do with ureteric obstruction, which is really I suppose the, um, the the cats that we see. Do you think that do you think that something has happened? I suppose in recent time that makes us think that this was a problem. Do you think that this has been ongoing for? A long period of time but maybe I, I suppose I was thinking about the use of diagnostic imaging and maybe ultrasound being more sort of familiar in practice that maybe uh, uh, people are, are uh, having this on a differential or do you think this is kind of a emerging um, issue and related to um, more stones forming in cats or different types of stones forming in cats it's probably a lot of questions sorry it's quite a lot of questions in one go but we'll try and um, work through those so so I think what what is tending to happen is that cats are forming stones in their kidneys and I think that that's been happening more commonly than it maybe did historically and we seem to see a bunch of young cats that are doing this um, and then we will also see the older cat population where it goes a bit more hand in hand with having chronic kidney disease and it can become a bit blurred which came first the chronic kidney disease or the presence of the kidney stones but certainly in the younger cats, and we will see cats sometimes that are only two years old, three years old, that are coming in with these um, ureteral obstructions. I think they've formed stones for some reason. Sometimes they're hypercalcemic, and maybe that could be a precipitating factor. Sometimes they're not, and we're not really sure exactly why they're doing it. It's going to be a combination of factors. Um, and usually they're not actually going to be on anyone's differential list until the cat is acutely unwell so because you've got two kidneys and because essentially you could take one away and the other one would do a perfectly good job if it was healthy a lot of the time these cats maybe could have even had a historic obstruction that was completely missed and the cat wasn't particularly unwell and if it had been seen it would have just been I don't know, brought in as maybe a cat that didn't seem quite right, maybe a bit off its food. Um, and if you had have done a blood test at that point, the cat wouldn't have even necessarily been azotemic if it was only obstructed on one side. And then the point at which we're actually seeing them and they're getting referred to us is the point at which they get an obstruction on the second side, 
and that first kidney is sort of, you know, quite badly damaged, um, or the unlucky cats that have bilateral obstructions simultaneously. See, that's that's definitely um, a bit unlucky for for that to happen at uh, at both the same time. So I suppose if I I was in... If I was in, um, uh, you know, in general practice, I saw a cat came in that had, as you said, so the the vague signs it might be just blown off as as nothing because they recover if even if one kidney is affected. But when the other kidney um, it seems to be affected or both at the at the same time, then obviously they, they come in with signs similar, uh, you know, to to I suppose acute kidney injury, except that maybe an anuric or 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 not. And do you think at do you think at that point that everyone should you know have a look at these to image these um, these cats to try and sort of ascertain whether they have anything like a, a ureteric obstruction? Do you think that the um, the knowledge is getting better that people are looking for this as a, I suppose as a potentially treatable cause rather than what would we normally think probably toxins? Would that be a fair to say is that as a most likely other cause? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that if you're seeing a cat in practice that seems to have an acute kidney injury, then diagnostic imaging is a really important part of just getting a basic idea of of what could be going on for that cat. Because, And it doesn't necessarily, so ultrasound would be one option um, and radiographs would be another. Um, Typically, these cats, if they've got nephroliths um, and and ureteroliths, they tend to be calcium oxalate based um, in the vast majority of cases. So they should show up on your radiographs. Um, But yes, some form of imaging is really important for a cat that seems to have an acute kidney injury, because like you say, you're just trying to treat the treatable. So if you can find that they've got an obstruction, then that is then going to be a treatable cause and something we can do to intervene. Um, you know, another option, I guess, would be a pyelonephritis for some reason, um, some sort of toxic injection, ingestion, absolutely. Sometimes you're never really going to, to know. But yeah, some sort of diagnostic imaging at that point is really important. The harder ones are the cats that maybe aren't particularly azotemic or, or for them, their creatinine could have gone up. But if you never had a baseline that was lower in a in a otherwise healthy younger cat, and why would you? You might not realise. And then, of course, sometimes it will be that you're just investigating a cat for not being right, even if it's not obviously azotemic. And then you might come across this as an almost incidental finding on your diagnostic imaging. Um, and some cats, you'll come across the fact that there are nephroliths there, even if they're not obstructed at that time. Um, and then those are cats just to sort of have in the back of your mind that they could obstruct at a later date. So, so I suppose there's there's two things that I I'm, I'm not quite sure if we how we even search for the answer. But do we think the prevalence of this is a lot higher than obviously the, the case population that we that we see? Do you think that we because they're of pyelonephritis so, or um, toxins are, are, are potentially high up on the list as well that that often those you know they, they may be treated um with potentially some fluids antibiotics w- whatever else is required and they don't respond that actually they they had this problem so to do we, how how are we gonna <laughs> how can we answer that question um do you do you think yeah the question is are, are we just missing some of these cases um yeah. well yeah, we probably are missing some of these cases. But um, at the end of the day, all we can do really for that, I guess, is to have it on people's radar to think about it as something else to check for, um, especially in, in you know the cats that we've just been talking about that sort of present with an AKI-type presentation. Um, then this is going to be something to just be aware of that some sort of imaging is going to be useful to look for this. And the the other question I have, I'm glad that you're uh, um, you're you're here for, is I know that you you love everything to do with uh, with stones, but is is more to do with um, uh, why is it sort of one particular type of stone that is the most common, or do we have any idea why that is the case causing these obstructions? That's something to do with the um, the type of stone formation. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, 
that is a really good question, I think. So why calcium oxalate stones particularly rather than anything else? I think I think that ultimately in cats, um, you've got to remember that the two most common types of stones are going to be calcium oxalate or struvite stones, but we just don't tend to get struvite stones so much in the upper urinary tract. Um, and other stone types are then relatively rare in the cat. Um, I mean, it's also the case that the majority of upper urinary tract stones, say nephroliths and things, are, are calcium oxalate in humans um, and in, in other species as well, um, so dogs and things as well. So they do seem to be kind of across the board the most likely they're going to form in the upper urinary tract. And things up there are a bit different to the lower urinary tract. So a lot of the time when we tend to think of stones forming in the bladder, we think a lot about the kind of supersaturation of the, um, you know, different kind of molecules coming together to then sort of precipitate out and um, form crystals and stones. And we're just not really sure that that's quite how things work in the upper urinary tract where you haven't got a pool of urine sort of sat there for a period of time in the same way and it's not something that's really very well understood um about why we're necessarily getting them forming up there but they do seem to be the most common type that we'll see there are of course other things that could cause your ureteric obstruction so it's not just going to be stones um you could have um, an obstruction from a blood clot you could have obstruction if you had some sort of tumor um a stricture that's formed maybe after a previous um incident to the ureter um and then of course we do see some cats that have had ureteral ligation during surgery for example that then have ureteric obstructions but certainly the most common cause seems to be stones so, so Bex, when <clears throat> when you see one of these cases, as in that, that I'm, I'm sure some of them <clears throat> come in through uh, your service as well, so not necessarily as as, as emergencies. So, what what are the what are the questions that you want to um, answer before whether you think it might be appropriate for a subcutaneous urethral bypass, or what what where do you where do you plan your um, tests, and what what do you what are you interested in asking of these cats? Yeah, so uh, so I guess because sometimes we will see cats that have stones in their kidneys, but that, that they're just sat there and they're not actually causing a problem. And we do get cats like that referred to us in medicine. Um, and those are difficult cases because there's not really anything that we can do to specifically do anything about those stones. Um, they, we, they can't be dissolved, calcium oxalate stones, um, and they're a bit too tiny um, in the cat for any sort of technologies that sort of we currently have certainly in the UK to be trying to kind of break them down in any way. So essentially with those cats, we have to look at implementing our best kind of management to reduce future stone formation and then just being aware that if one of those cats becomes off colour at some point it should definitely be checked to make sure it hasn't had one of them move and cause a, a, an obstruction. For the ones where we think there might be an obstruction it kind of comes down to you know do you can you see a stone in the ureter? do you think there's one that's actually causing obstruction to urine flow um, and if there is, and it doesn't look like it's going to move with medical management, then those are the cats where it would be indicated for us to think about placing a sub. But it can be a little bit tricky sometimes. You know, on the one hand, you think, well, that should be straightforward enough. But actually, sometimes deciding whether you should place one or not, there are quite a few cats that seem to fall into a bit of a grey zone. So, a lot of the time, you're going to be looking at things like how dilated is the renal pelvis and is there dilation of the proximal ureter? Um, and if sort of one or both of those are present, um, I mean, other things can cause them to be a bit dilated. So you will see a bit of dilation if a cat's just already been on fluids. You might see a bit of dilation if they've got pyelonephritis, for example, but that combined with especially maybe seeing either a stone present on a radiograph or um, evidence of a, a stone or a certainly a um, sort of shadowing uh, structure in a ureter on ultrasound makes you think that there's 
that there's going to be an obstruction there. And then people will start debating about complete obstructions versus partial obstructions. And if it isn't completely obstructed, do you need to intervene? The bottom line is that if you've got obstruction and it stays there for a long enough period of time, it's going to cause irreversible damage to a number, if not many, of the nephrons in that kidney. And so if we are worried that we think there is obstruction there, we will have taken measurements of the renal pelvis in that proximal ureter. And then if we're going to give the cat a period of time, just essentially on intravenous fluids um, and pain relief to see whether that stone is going to move, um, we will then reassess the cat on a regular basis. And if actually things look like they're getting worse or the obstruction's not relieving, then that's a cat where it would be indicated to place a sub on that side. Um, And sometimes we will end up placing bilateral subs where it's you know they do look like they're obstructed bilaterally um and and maybe one side's worse than the other but if you're going in and placing one then you kind of end up thinking well let's place both because essentially what you're doing with the sub is just diverting the urine so that there's a, a different route that it can flow down to get to the bladder so that it's not having to try and flow down that ureter which you know, remember a cat ureter is about 0.3 of a millimetre in its internal diameter. It's so, so, so tiny that having kind of anything in it, really, even a really small stone can cause a major obstruction to the flow of urine. Um, yeah. So with with um, uh, sort of options, so thank, thank, thank you for, for, for that as, as, as well. It's very, very complete. But with options, so if someone for whatever reason didn't want to go down to a potential sort of surgical path. So as you, as you said, with fluids and, and analgesia, is there a time frame that you have in your mind that you, you should see an improvement as long as things don't get, get worse, obviously, or it becomes um, having electrolyte abnormalities or anuric? So do you have a, a time frame in mind that you, that you think you'd, you'd give it a go or, or, or do we know? And, and, and I suppose I was thinking with medical, sorry, with, with people, um, quite often, and emphasise the ureter is, is is the answer that that they can just pass these. So, is there are, are there stains that cats are just able to pass, but maybe that something sort of different in their diet or how we approach them that um, they're bigger and bigger stains? Yeah, I think a large amount of it comes down to the size of the ureter. I think this is why we're having you know it's so kind of dramatic in the cat that they get these obstructions, and then often we can't do anything you know very effective medically because it's just so tiny so they don't need a big stone to end up having quite a big problem um they can certainly um move their own way out of the ureter and they do i mean we sometimes have cats that you know come in and they're obstructed and we can see that they are and we give them a little bit of time um you know, and, and re-image them the next day and the stones moved and popped into the bladder. You know, sometimes we're lucky enough to see that happen. And we actually find that if you place a sub in a cat, then it's quite common that down the line, that stone or stones kind of moved out of that ureter and the ureter becomes patent again. But exactly how long that takes, we don't always know because maybe we'll been reassessing the cat every three months for example um but certainly when we were first placing these subs and we used to do a lot of um fluoroscopy to to check them um, at future visits we would quite often find that those ureters became patent again so they will move the question is will they move quick enough to save the nephrons um and stop them being irreversibly damaged so in terms of time frame it varies a little bit depending on how azotemic the cat is, because obviously the more azotemic they are, the more crucial it is really that we don't leave it too long. Um, so how azotemic they are, and then also whether or not an owner is willing and motivated and, and wants to go down the route of having a sub put in. Because if we have a cat that is very azotemic and you know we discuss all the ins and outs and and we can 
obviously covered um, some of those potentially in this podcast, but we'll discuss the ins and outs of placing the sub and they want to go for that, then we're going to wait um, a much shorter period of time before making that final decision than we would do if maybe the finances simply aren't there to ever even consider a sub, in which case we'll give it a lot longer um, to see whether the cat's going to be able to work well where we can get the creatinine down to where it will plateau at, see if the cat's going to be able to manage just with medical management. So if surgery is a likelihood, then we'll often maybe look at giving it 24 to 48 hours to see whether we're going to get, um, you know, whether that obstruction is going to relieve itself. But it's not, it isn't a, a hard and fast rule that that's fine, just stick them all on fluids for 48 hours and see where you end up at. You've got to take the other things into account. So, so we're sort of touching on on it at the at the at the moment, Bex. But what what does actually having a a, a sub in place mean for the for the for the cat? Because I suppose in in some way, you know, if I'm a very simple person, but if you it's it's a plumbing thing, isn't it? You're just plumbing in something to bypass the ureters to go in, into the into the bladder. But actually, what what that <clears throat> you know putting in something um uh, such as as these sort of devices actually then they're, they're not it's not necessarily smooth sailing job done off we go no unfortunately not you're right it is plumbing it's basically just plumbing um and plumbing that works really well to divert the urine um you know straight from the the kidney into the bladder so it doesn't matter what's happening with the ureter the difficulty is sometimes that we need to then maintain that plumbing so depending on I guess maybe the the cat's individual factors of of why it might have formed the stone in the first place those um, tubes can become blocked so they can become mineralized and and blocked with mineralized material Um, they can also the cat might develop a urinary tract infection and they can be more difficult to clear if when you've got an implant in place just like with an implant in any other part of the body if you then get infection there it can become harder um, to clear it so we usually end up you know depending on exactly how the individual cat is doing but kind of recommending that that sub implant is going to need to be flushed and assessed and kind of the general cat checked over every three months um for for at least maybe the first couple of years after the sub's been in place and then we might increase the um sort of time frame between those checks and flushes after that if everything's going um really smoothly but it it is therefore quite a big commitment um and if we have any major problems with it and sometimes they will get blocked and there doesn't seem to be anything we can do to unblock them and things like that then you may be looking at trying to remove that implant if the ureters become patent and can do its job again down the line so they are they are quite a commitment for owners to take on it's difficult though isn't it because they unfortunately it's not there's not necessarily a lot of um options with these cases so it's not as if we can say you can do this um or that it's really you can do this or i'm sorry we, there's nothing more we could do yeah yeah if if they really um need you know if they're completely obstructed they're really azotemic there isn't a lot else that we can do so yes we can we can do our sort of initial medical management um and we tend to do fluids and pain relief you you can look at giving things like prazosin to try and help relax the ureter um although there isn't sort of tons of evidence to support that um sometimes people will give mannitol um you know there's other things that people try although not necessarily that we have a lot of evidence to say that they're going to make a big difference um so yes if we have a cat that is you know severely azotemic from its obstructions and it's not going to be an option to place that sub then we are a bit out of options unfortunately so they are they are very difficult and this is it and you know actually they are a life-saving intervention for a lot of the cats that had them have them placed and then go on to often you know give them years of further good quality of life but it's always a case of us needing to discuss all the kind of ins and outs of what it's going to be like having that in and sort of needing to maintain it before we do that so are there are there things that we can <clears throat> we can 
do in people for for this problem that have been tried in, in cats that haven't been successful? So are there are there sort of non invasive ways to, to break down the, the stones and and what's your take on the issue sort of with that or why we're not going down that route yeah well one of the big things is it comes back to the size of the ureter again so um you know whereas in people you might be sort of going up with a camera and then lasering their stones we just can't do that in the cat because we don't have the equipment tiny enough to be able to feasibly do it um or um essentially you know there are kind of shockwave therapies that you can do externally to help break up stones and things like that um but I, I don't think anybody really has been doing much of that in cats it happens a bit in dogs in the states in some places um one problem that we have with cats, I mean, this is what it comes down to when we know they're in the kidney and they've not yet caused a problem, but we're just worrying that they might do, is that if you were also to break up those stones in some way, you still need to get the bits out because even the bits, in fact, the bits might cause you more of an issue because if they're smaller, they might be more likely to travel down the ureter and they could still get stuck. So this is why they're such a problem because everything's just so small. Yeah, and I suppose that it's unlikely for, um, I suppose, technology to to improve that much that you can put a camera or somewhere to break down a, um, you know, a, a diameter of of point three of a mil. That's 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 quite quite a challenge, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the other thing you know that you could do would be to kind of go into rather than up the ureter would be to go into the kidney, um, to then try and do things, but you are inevitably going to cause some damage to the kidney by doing that, whether you're either trying to put a camera into the renal pelvis, for example, through the kidney, um, or or whether, you know, sometimes when they're really big and causing a major problem just in the renal pelvis, we have had occasions where our surgeons have gone in and just, you know, surgically opened the kidney and taken them out. Um, But obviously you're causing trauma and damage to the kidney there. So, yeah, I think... It would be better if we had a way of sort of being able to stop these happening before before they do form. Um, if we had a, a if we knew which cats were likely to do it, and you know we had interventions that we could do to kind of stop them from forming in the first place. But um, I, I mean, it's something I'm very interested in finding out. But we're not there. We're certainly not there yet. So. Fair enough. Well, it's it's good to it's good to try and try and work work that out. And so, so although um, uh, yeah, as we said, like that the the plumbing is is part of it, and placing these and the the long term sort of um, uh, care. Do we do we know what owners sort of per- perceive this? Do we, is there anybody that's actually looked into that, or are we looking into like the owner perceptions of this? Because I suppose that with with some conditions in people, they'd ask, you know, would you have the same thing happen again and I suppose we always anthropomorphize for the patients that we have we don't can't necessarily ask them but but at least the the owners that we can ask I suppose about and and what's your perception on um going through with this procedure yeah that's a really good question I don't think that anybody has specifically done that research to ask the to look at what the owner perception is um from my experience it would end up being um, quite mixed you know there are people who really feel that the sub was has been amazing for their cat because it saved their life and has given them you know x amount more time um and then there are definitely going to be people that feel like the whole thing has just been um a bit more of a nightmare than they maybe wanted and I guess some of that is going to come down to what has happened afterwards in terms of how well the cat has tolerated having it in whether they've had any post-operative complications in terms of you know any infections or or anything like that or a sub that's got blocked that they've had to have taken out so I imagine all of those things would come into play um but yeah I think that would be interesting research to do to find out how people feel about it and do and do we know of the of the cats that we have placed this in can we can we is there any way to predict those that might have a um, an issue, say, with the UTI or or um, or a blockage, or do we know to say if their cats actually come in with a 
with the UTI currently, are they more likely to, to get um, uh, an, inf- an infection that is hard to clear? So does, does having a UTI worse or better or, or do, we, do we not know yet? So this is something that we've just been looking at, actually. Um, one of our, uh, sur- our surgical intern from last year was, um, was looking into this. Um, and we've got a paper that's just under review that sort of looks at this for our institution. So um, essentially, having an infection sort of at the time of having the sub placed does not sort of suggest that that cat's going to go on to have long-term issues with infections that we can't clear um there are sort of a couple of bits and bobs that have kind of come out in that research is potentially suggesting that a cat could be more likely to get an infection um later but it's not it's not very clear cut um and it also seems to be different across different institutions so certainly the data that has come out of the US, for example, the cats over there seem to have maybe more of a likelihood to get blockages from getting mineralization of their subs. And we don't see so much of that over here. But um, infection rates are, are broadly similar um, in the different countries. But on the whole, we maybe seem to have infections that can be harder to get rid of sometimes. So things are a little bit variable, depending on the institution and the country and um and I think it's sort of you know this is the sort of thing that actually as people are getting more and more experience with these because I mean we I think we placed our first sub at the RVC in 2013 so it's not something that's been you know uh, that we've been doing for a really long time and as people get more experience and they've had more cases something that we need to do some um you know, multi-institutional research on to maybe bring them all together and and try and get a bit more of a definitive answer about what the risks are for the cats going on to have issues. Because the other thing that we will sometimes see is cats that end up with lower urinary tract signs but don't have infections. And they can be quite variable as well. So some cats can have just you know, fairly mild, like they maybe occasionally have stranguria, occasionally have hematuria, um, but otherwise, you know, don't show too many signs through to some cats that have really quite severe lower urinary tract signs that are fairly persistent. And we presume are due to having that sort of sub um, cystostomy tube in the bladder that's causing local irritation there. So that can cause a problem for some cats. But yeah, if we could kind of like bring the cats together from multi, multiple different places to, to look at them all. I think that could be really useful. But I suppose that's good in some ways. That you, just, you can't predict what, um, what cats might have a problem. And, and I know that, I suppose that's good that we, we haven't necessarily found that, which means that, you know, it's unfortunate if, if, they, if they do, obviously, for that individual and, and, the, and the owners, but actually we can't, we can't predict what's gonna what's gonna happen with that which probably gives some um yeah absolutely and and we're working all the time to try and improve all of our general management protocols to um you know alleviate any problems as they come up you know as quickly as we can and and so to prevent sort of long-term chronic issues and I think we're getting better and better at that the more cats that we see um and we and we definitely have you know the majority of the cats that we see will have these placed and then we'll just do really well. So, you know, it's always that thing of sort of the ones that are having more problems are the ones that you maybe end up um, hearing about more from the owners, seeing back more frequently, etc. Um, but but a lot of these cats do do really, really well. Well, because I, I think actually I saw one at, at some time in the, in the recent history that I don't think actually came back for for many checks at all and, and seem to be doing um yes. well so. yes i know the cat you're talking about that then sort of um yeah materialized back with us quite a few years down the line yeah, yeah. we certainly have cats especially from earlier on when we um maybe didn't realize you know that if we flushed more of them on a more regular basis, we could sort of, you know, prevent some of the issues from happening, like the, the mineralization and things like that. Um, we we certainly had cats that 
um, sort of, you know, had them placed, went on their merry way and didn't really come back um, for much at all. So, yeah, some some of them do seem to just do really well and don't seem to need much follow-up and intervention. But, of course, yeah, unless you can predict which those are going to be, you end up sort of having to make some general recommendations for all of them. And, and do you think so? With with sort of uh, recommendations, obviously the the, the follow up is to is to have a look at the uh, at the subs and and um, to to flush those to see what material is in there, make sure that they they patent. But is there um, anything that we're looking at, sort of with nutrition wise or food wise, or what 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 these what should we should do with these cats to maybe prevent this problem from? going on so yeah. because i suppose we've identified that these cats have a have an issue with calcium oxalate crystals haven't we by definition if we put a sub in that that really means that that's the that's the case so how do we manage those and, and how do they how do they deal with that management can we do you think we can get these under control with um, nutrition yeah management? absolutely so so we don't have a one size fits all approach and that's because essentially after they've had the sub placed we kind of end up having to then um, assess the cats and see where their kidney function has ended up. Um, because on the whole, the sort of the thing that we know works best in terms of trying to reduce future calcium oxalate stone formation is for the cats to eat a wet diet. Because cats that are eating a wet food take in so much more water than cats that are eating a dry food and have access to water to drink um, and the more water that they're taking in going to help to reduce their usg and and we hope just sort of reduce the chance that we're going to have um you know precipitation of of calcium monoxalate and the stones forming so a wet diet is our sort of best option now on top of that it's then a case of us maybe looking at where the kidney function has ended up so if we've had if we had a cat that then settles um with azotemia and that you know we're ultimately going to stage under iris for their ckd but if they're kind of an azotemic ckd cat then we will usually look at putting them onto a renal diet um, and preferably a wet renal diet in this case Whereas if they are non-azotemic and we can have cats that, yeah, essentially end up as just an iris stage one, um, or certainly a non-azotemic stage two and can stay like that for many years, then with those cats, we're looking more at putting them onto a urinary diet of some sort. Um, or uh, if they don't want to eat the urinary diet at all, then essentially a wet a wet cat food um, of, of any sort in preference to a dry one. Um, so, and then we've got the additional complication on top of that is some of these cats will be hypercalcemic um, and some of them won't be. And then us trying to see what diet works best in terms of helping to um, reduce any hypercalcemia that could be present um, for the cats where that is the case and where they are persistently hypercalcemic so yeah we do tinker about with diets quite a lot and it's one of the things that each time we're seeing these cats and kind of reassessing them is to see okay well where are we at in terms of their kidney function what diet are they on do we think there's anything we could be doing better to try and um, change that to reduce the chance that they're going to form more stones because like we said before you can't dissolve these stones so it's really going to be a case of just seeing if we can reduce future stone formation and, and do we do we know? Um, I suppose with with Bex with with diets as well that we can say, well, they do they do work, as in they do reduce the the sort of stones formation in the in the general cat population. Is that a, a fair comment? Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's slightly tricky in terms of these upper urinary tract stones. Um, so. So certainly sort of the urinary diets, and like I say, they're only really suitable for kind of the non-azotemic cats, then yes, they do work, but it tends to be, you know, the studies that have looked at that tend to look at what's going on in the lower urinary tract. And quite often they're going to have looked at what's happening in terms of crystal formation rather than necessarily stone formation. Um, And we don't necessarily have data that's looked at sort of long-term what's happening so this this is not an area where we can apply when we're trying to do our evidence-based medicine this is not an area where we have 
tons of evidence um to to fall back on um and and you know that's why really with the ASA team at cats we end up sort of saying okay well you know we have more evidence to say that once cats have azotemic CKD, they benefit from a renal diet. And therefore, that's why we go down the renal diet route. We just try and look at it being a wet renal diet because we know that sort of, you know, our best evidence from a um, stone forming point of view is that the diet should be a wet diet rather than a dry diet. Do you, do you think, I, I mean, obviously, I, I've, well, not obviously, but um, I do, do you have a cat that I feed uh, dry food? And um, I suppose I, maybe I've got me thinking, maybe should, should we all just give wet food to cats? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, isn't it such a good question? I think every cat owner, you just sort of end up in this dilemma of, okay, well, what, what should I feed my own cat to sort of, you know, try and do the best for them? And of course, if we all just feed wet food, then their teeth are going to be, you know, in a much worse state much earlier than if they're having dry food. Um, so <laughs> I I basically feed my own cats wet and dry food. I decided I was just going to hedge my bets. <laughs> and then if they develop something later, then maybe, you know, at least they're accustomed to, to both. But ultimately, cats also are going to have their own specific preferences. And we have some of our subcats on our books who only eat dry food because that is all they're willing to eat. And, you know, they're just not interested in, in going on to a wet food. Um, and you have to work with the individual cat, obviously, as well. So um, I, I think, you know, the thing is that actually if you start looking across the board at all of the different things cats can get, there are going to be some associations one way or the other with dry versus wet food. We definitely don't have enough evidence to just say cats overall are going to benefit um you know in terms of every every respect if they're on wet food so when it comes to this problem yes but is it common enough and sort of like the most important thing that can happen to a cat and therefore trumps other problems it's, it's probably it's probably a, a um a topic of conversation for for like a a, a week symposium or something isn't it not a not, not, exactly. not a throwaway <laughs> comment uh, about this sorry I just no I just yeah. you know I, I suppose I was thinking oh crikey I've been doing the wrong thing for the last 10 years or but uh um but I don't, you know. anyway no I, no I, I think that you know I think I think that's the thing um we we certainly don't have um evidence to say no <laughs> you're, you're doing the wrong thing your cat must now be switched solely onto wet food um yeah and I mean we don't we don't know for sure that that would prevent this happening in the first place um it, you know, nobody's sort of specifically looked at that. So, 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 uh, Bex, are you what are you looking into these the, the cats that have had these plays? Are you trying to find is there any sort of similarities with their ability to to um, to manage their electrolytes or to be more stone formers? Is that is that what you're you're trying to do? Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm interested in doing is um, seeing sort of for these cats whether they've got a difference in terms of their kind of metabolism and and what they're doing with their sort of calcium homeostasis and and things like that um I'm also interested in the genetics of these cats so um you know is there is there something that in their genes that's making these cats more likely to be stone formers um than than other cats um and you know what? What other differences can we find in terms of what's going on in their blood and their urine that's making them more predisposed? Um, because, like I say, some of them we're seeing at a really young age, um, and so you sort of feel that there must be something kind of inherent in their genetics or their um, metabolism that's increasing their risk. And there's, a, I mean, there's a bunch of things, and we sort of know from kind of studies in people um, and the bits and bobs that we have from our species there's a, a bunch of factors that are going to be involved here so genes are going to be one part of it and um, you know the diet that they're eating is going to be another part there could be other environmental factors um, you know there's going to be a whole bunch of things that are probably important um, but it's trying to find something that then we could use as a way to identify these cats beforehand so that then you know, because if we had a way of flagging them, then we could 
truly examine which interventions are the most successful in terms of preventing the problem in the first place. I know it's only small numbers that we've looked at really or had here at the uh, the RVC but but there's there's no particular breed that's overrepresented I suppose like what I'm saying is domestic short hairs rather than anything else is that is that right? We definitely sort of all the cats we see we see more domestic short hairs than other particular breeds um that present with this issue um in terms of you know studies historically have found occasional breeds where they seem to be a bit more at, at risk um so persian cats for example a bit more at risk but um in terms of you know what what we see here because obviously there are many more domestic short hairs um in the uk than there are persian cats um we see you know we've seen many different breeds presenting with the problem but certainly the vast majority are the domestic short hairs and then some domestic long hairs as well hmm. and and is there any anything with about their um their body condition score or uh, as as a as a factor in in that an indoor outdoor i was, was just thinking those those two things so i know the majority of cats in the uk are really sort of indoor outdoor aren't they rather than maybe in in north america or yeah, they are. And um, I don't think that we really know um, with regards to that in terms of indoor-outdoor. I'm trying to think what, what there is um, in the in the literature. I mean, certainly, yes, like you say, in the UK, we have a lot more indoor-outdoor cats than in some other countries, like the States, for example, where there's a lot more indoor cats. Um, and body condition score don't think they're sort of certainly the cats that we're seeing we don't we're not really tending to see overweight cats particularly um and you know a lot of them are sort of pretty pretty normal or slightly under body condition score rather than being overweight. so, so where, where would you where do you think we're we're going with this so obviously if we have a better understanding of the cats that are super stone formers we might we be able to to capture um uh, these this group like before and hopefully sort of prevent that from happening so so that that would be a good thing do you think we're <clears throat> anywhere going to advance our more advanced sort of plumbing or is i know that's not necessarily a, a medical sort of type question but do you think you know, do you think there is a going to be a better solution, or we're just going to improve really what we have? Because I suppose at the start when I made a faux pas about saying stents, because that, that's originally what I what I saw at my uh, in my residency, and they were always like fraught with complications. And I suppose the um, you know, it's not to say that the subs don't, but it, again, it's like a an imperfect solution to a to a to a problem. You know, there. I, do you think they we're going to get better like in leaps or do you think we're just going to refine things yeah I mean you're absolutely right the sub is you know is a great step forward compared to the urethral stenting option which was always very difficult in cats and fraught with complications so that has been an enormous step forward and and certainly you know that continues to be um improved and and refined and um there's the the sub 2.0 um that people are using now compared to the original uh one that was that was designed so um you know that certainly moved on um yes i mean i guess you know the question is going to be whether we can essentially people are going to move towards having better options for things that we can use to dissolve or break up or remove these stones um I mean it might be possible that someone comes up with a better sort of plumbing option but like you say that's probably more for the surgeons to think about but um but yeah whether we can actually come up with something where we can do something to um treat the stones themselves or kind of get rid of them when they're there um in combination with yeah seeing whether we can prevent them from happening a bit more um I mean you know it'd be great down the line if essentially we knew so much more so that we could answer the question of what should your individual cat be fed 
um, you know, what, what's the best option for your cat's health in terms of what type of diet should it be on from a young age and things like that. But and obviously it will take a while to to get there, but it would be great if we had a way of sort of knowing what was going to benefit the individual. I'm glad you said that because I was thinking we, we it, there's definitely a move, isn't there, to individual um, uh, uh, care for, for people. And I wonder whether that, you know, that would be translated into into cats and dogs, you know, like by these sort of genetic factors, or whatever we think you should eat this and and here it is. Absolutely. And I mean, it's such a complicated, <laughs> um, you know, area. I mean, you just have to look at sort of, you know, people in the, the very varied diets that people eat in different parts of the world. And the fact that actually there are multiple different diets that are all associated with better cardiovascular health for humans. And it doesn't seem to be that there's one factor that kind of ties them all together. Um, and it's going to be the same in dogs and cats. You know, it's not going to be a one size fits all approach, even if we have general rules of things that seem to work better. It's going to come down to the the individual for for which things actually, um, you know, are, are going to keep them at their healthiest and least likely to develop certain problems. But um, yeah, such a com- such a complicated area. Wow. Well, I, th- I think do you, do you, did we miss any anything? Do you think, Bex, about um, sub- subcutaneous ure- ureteral bypass, or or do you think we've we've covered? most of the elements you you think it's important to discuss i think that we have largely covered it all um if there's anybody listening who thinks no you haven't i've got a specific question (laughs) then they'll just have to email me (laughs) um i'm always happy to talk about stones in cat kidneys and subs and management and everything so um yes but no i think we've largely covered it well, I, um, well, thank you very much. I know it's a, a different, uh, a different experience, sort of recording via the uh, via the internet, but um, but it's uh, it's been a joy. So I think we'll uh, wrap it up there. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. So thanks again for listening, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't even worry about missing a podcast. So if you could leave us a review, five star review, obviously would be great on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get this podcast, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any friends. We're, we're open to anyone, and we'll place some show notes in the RBC pages. So just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email me dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.